President Obama asked me to come see him in Chicago three or four days after the election was over to talk about national security issues. And I can remember sitting down with him and he goes, something along the lines says, okay, I've been after this bus. I caught the bus, tell me what's on it. And I said, Mr. President, the bus is full. When people ask me what the best job I ever had was, it was chairman because here's a, you know, it's a great American story. Middle-class kid from Southern California can rise up through the ranks uh, and become the senior military officer in the country. Yet, it was easily the toughest job. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. Today, I'm speaking with Admiral Mike Mullen. Mike served as a 17th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He oversaw the end of the combat mission in Iraq and the development of a new military strategy for Afghanistan while promoting international partnerships, new technologies, and new counterterrorism tactics culminating in the death of Osama bin Laden. Prior to serving as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he commanded at every level of the Navy. His fleet experience culminated in his assignment as the Navy's highest ranking officer, the 28th Chief of Naval Operations. Since retiring from the Navy, Mike has joined the boards of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, General Motors, Sprint, and the Bloomberg Family Foundation. He teaches at the Woodrow Wilson School of International and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He is also known for his efforts on behalf of service members, veterans, and their families. Mike, welcome to the podcast. I appreciated our opportunity to work together in Washington. You're as knowledgeable as anybody I know on security issues, so I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. I'd like to start at the beginning. You were born and raised in Los Angeles. Tell us a bit about your upbringing and what you learned from your parents. Well, I was raised in a small little town called Studio City, aptly named because that's where all the studios in Hollywood uh, and in the San Fernando Valley were located, and many of them still are. My mom and dad were both in the entertainment business. My mother was an assistant in a famous former entertainer named Jimmy Durante, and my dad actually went on the road uh, with Gene Autry in the 40s. That was his first job. They met at Republic Studios. They got married. My mother left Republic to raise five kids, and my dad stayed in publicity, basically. And that's the world I grew up in. And I was not overly familiar with the business. You, you meet a few you know, really famous people. Uh, but my my dad basically kept the business out of the house, raised five kids. I hadn't seen much of the world. My mom and dad were both depression era kids. They came to California to find their dreams. And uh, when I was 17, my dad put me on an airplane for uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and and basically said, the message was, you're on your own now. I got four more kids behind you and I got to take care of them as well. So it was an idyllic childhood raised in two Catholic schools with the nuns, uh, something that, you know, I cherish, uh, you know, uh, to this day, obviously. So you went to Annapolis. So how was it you decided to apply to Annapolis? So I had a dear friend of mine who graduated a year ahead of me in high school, and he went to Annapolis to play football. I knew nothing about the Navy. I knew nothing about the Marine Corps, and I knew nothing about Annapolis. But his father was a Beverly Hills cop 
and my own father had not served in World War II. He was medically not qualified. But uh, um, John Gregory was this guy's name, and he kept chasing me. And I knew John pretty well. He says, this is something you really ought to look at. I think it's a really good fit for you. So at the last minute, my senior year in high school, I decided to do that. I'd already accepted a scholarship to play basketball at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which would have been a disaster. I grew up on the beach out there. It would have been, it would have been more volleyball on the beach. It would have been the fraternities. It would have been the parties, et cetera. I'd have been home pretty quickly. I knew at 17, I needed some discipline. I needed some structure. I, I was a good student, not a great student, but I was a good student. So at the last minute, the Naval Academy actually recruited me to play basketball. And I had a hankering that I still can't explain today to go east and go to school. It just was something that was in me. And so I went and my original 17 year old plan was just go for two years. I could leave after two years and come back and go to UCLA. Obviously that didn't work out. Tell us about Annapolis. What impact did the Naval Academy have on your life and what was it like your four years there? Well, I, with rare exception, I met the best friends of my life. Uh, you know, I showed up in Baltimore, Maryland on the 30th of June as a California kid. I got out of the airplane. It's 90 degrees. It's 90 percent humidity. And I had no idea people could actually live in weather like that. But later that day, I started to meet my classmates. And back then it was all young men from all over the country. And in its own way, the country just opened up the various regions, the backgrounds, the cultures. Uh, and it's just something I took to mostly through the people. Uh, my, my parents, among other things, left me with a tremendous feeling for the importance of people. And my parents were both people, people, and I was as well. So I so enjoyed meeting and engaging my classmates uh, and I was very attracted to them. And that really kind of just set me on a path to stay there, obviously a lot longer than I'd anticipated. So after uh, finishing up at the Naval Academy, you went on to lead a very distinguished career, obviously, in the Navy, commanding at every level of the Navy. And so talk a little bit about how your career in the Navy unfolded. Well, something else I learned from my parents was hard work and responsibility. And certainly the Navy provided me plenty of opportunities for that. I got a lot of responsibility early. I graduated in 1968, which those of us of age would remember that was a pretty tough year in the country uh, at the height of the Vietnam War. And a year later, I was actually off the coast of Vietnam, providing uh, artillery or gunfire support from a ship, a destroyer to Army and Marine Corps units uh, at the DMZ. And we did that for several months from in six, late 69 to early 70. But it was great responsibility. I actually, uh, on my ship, I actually was the officer in charge of our drone. Uh, you know, in these modern times, we talk about drones. I was actually flying a drone back in 1969 and 1970 off the coast of Vietnam uh, to support troops ashore. So it was a fabulous opportunity, not unlike going to the Naval Academy, sort of opening up uh, my mind to the rest of the country. What that deployment did in 1969 was open up the rest of the world. I fell in love with the Western Pacific. I fell in love with the ethos, the people, the culture. I was in and out of the Philippines, in and out of Japan. Uh, and obviously, I was in my first war, which, uh, and we can come back to this, which actually left big scars on me as a young officer, uh, as many other things did in that time, uh, which had a big impact on me when I got into senior positions down the road. So again, I loved going to sea. I, did, I hadn't done that before. I knew that. And then I started to move up the ranks. Two ships later, I actually had a, I had command as a young lieutenant. So I was 26 years old. I was on the East Coast. I had a 
small gasoline tanker, World War II gasoline tanker, uh, about 100 sailors. Uh, and I deployed to the Med Mediterranean on two different deployments, and including 1973 when I was in the middle of the Yom Kippur War. And I was in that part of the Mediterranean for that war. So it was all pretty exciting. I had a lot of responsibility. What I do focus on, though, particularly when I talk about leadership, is I had a pretty bad start. And I had an evaluation that set me back in a way where many people advise me, uh, one, you took too much risk going to command early, and two, you have this evaluation, so you don't have any future. It was an F evaluation at the time. I learned a lot from that failure, including as the first time my wife, who we'd been married about, about three years at that point, it was the first time Deb saw me fail. Uh, so it had, you know, it was a personal impact as well as professional. And then I had a great mentor. And without that mentor, I, I didn't have much of a future. It took me 11 years to recover from that. And I would now like to talk about your role when you became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in October of 2007. That role, of course, is vitally important, but not well understood by the public. So tell us a bit about the Joint Chiefs of Staff and its role in relationship with the Pentagon, and how does it fit into the country's really vast national security apparatus? Well, Hank, if you did allow me to back up just a second, I, I was actually, as a four-star, stationed in Naples, Italy, which was a NATO hat as well as a U.S. Navy hat. And part of what I did in that was commanded 17,000 ground troops in the Balkans. They were NATO troops, but this was all after the Balkan Wars, uh, in the late 90s, and I was there in 2004, 2005. Uh, and that command experience there, turns out, helped me greatly when later on I went to the chairman's job. I also, it's the first time, that's when I met David Petraeus, because I, I had a NATO hat, uh, and Petraeus was in charge of a NATO training mission of Iraq ground forces. And so uh, I went, that was the first time I went to Iraq, and I met Petraeus there. He was a three-star in charge of training uh, the Iraqi forces as well as these NATO forces. So that ground experience in ways I didn't really know really had a big impact on me. I was then called back early to become the head of the Navy. And as the head of each of the service, uh, you're a member of the Joint Chiefs. The Joint Chiefs are six, then it was six, now it's a total of eight. So you have the head of each of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, you have the head of the National Guard, and most recently, you have the, the head of the Space Force, uh, as well as the chairman and the vice chairman. And the chairman and the vice chairman, and I had the chairman's job, the chairman and the vice chairman, basically, that's, that's, that's their full-time job. The Joint Chiefs, in a way, it's, their, their job is split because they're running their service, as well as their policy overseers and recommenders, if you will, as members of the Joint Chiefs. And so when I was head of the Navy, uh, I was a member of the Joint Chiefs, and this was during the Iraq War, which in the 05, 06 timeframe wasn't going that well. Uh, and that's where I first really learned about, you know, what the Joint Chiefs as a group did. Uh, and then quite surprisingly, my predecessor, who was a dear friend of mine, uh, General Pete Pace. In fact, when we were midshipmen, I lived across the hall from Pete in his last year there. So I'd known Pete and uh, his wife, Lynn, my roommate actually dated Lynn before uh, Pete and, and, and Lynn met. And yet Pete, as the chairman before me, he had gotten caught in this political crossfire. Uh, and, and Bob Gates then recommended me 
he couldn't get he couldn't get uh, uh, Pete across the line, and and the president supported that as well. So I got selected as chairman, and I appreciate the point about it can be a little bit confusing. The, the chairman is the principal military advisor to the president, to the secretary of defense, to the national security council, and to the homeland security council. So all the national security issues. Uh, that the country is involved in uh, and that the administration is involved in, the chairman sits in that environment to have the discussions, to have the debates, to make recommendations, you know, and then to carry out the orders, the vast majority of whom are so associated with uh, the Pentagon. So it's an advisor's role more than anything else. And I took it over at the height of the surge in Iraq at the end of the Bush administration, which was a pretty tough time, as I'm sure you remember. Oh, boy, yeah. But what a, what a time for you to be there. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about your leadership principles, and maybe you can go back to, to, to your mentor and what you learned there. What are the Mike Mullen management and leadership principles? After I retired, I taught at Princeton for six years. And then the last four years, I've been teaching at the Naval Academy, teaching seniors, those young men and women who are about to go out to the fleet. Uh, and I based the course on values and principles. And I do that at both courses. I did it at Princeton, although that wasn't a leadership course, but I included this in that. And I certainly do that here at the Naval Academy. And I do that because I want young men and women to think about their own beliefs. What are their values? What are their principles? And to use that as a framework to make decisions in what is a pretty tough world. It's a pretty confusing world. It's a pretty uncertain world. And while there was some of that when I graduated, I mean, you and I grew up in the Cold War. You sort of knew what the rules were. You know, it was it was us or them. It was, you know, black or white ones and zeros. Th these young ones are not living in that world right now. So when I work through the values piece, we talk about honor and integrity. We, we talk about courage. Uh, we talk about uh, the accountability, being accountable for yourself and for your organization and responsibility. We talk about human rights. We talk about the importance of national security as a value and their participation in that. And then principles for me, uh, they're almost supportive of those values uh, in, in terms of uh, the kinds of things that are important. Well, one of them is, and this goes back to my youth, you've got to be able to communicate. And, and you know as well as I, you, you, you can't communicate enough. You could say it a thousand times and I tell you it's got to be 10,000, you know, to get the message across. Another principle is how do you lead in a time of change? We are, we're at a time right now where there is enormous change, uh, and that can be very unsettling. The human being sort of likes the status quo. So leaders have to really be able to, to focus on change. I, I fundamentally believe, and I tell these young ensigns and second lieutenants to be here at, the, at Annapolis, what I pay them for is leadership. Leadership really matters. Yes, they need to learn their skills, Technically, they need to be able to drive submarine ships, fly airplanes, uh, handle a platoon, but they really need to lead. And that's what I want them to, to do and learn. Uh, when, when people ask, young ones ask me, well, how do I get ready for the future? My main message is, is take tough jobs. This is going to be a tough track that you're on. And I don't know of any better preparation than to have gone through tough jobs where you learn about the, all that involves in that. Trust your people uh, is another principle of mine. And there are various levels of that. But investing in your people, 
trusting them, taking risks that are calculated uh, and understood, and then have a bias for action. Don't sit back, have a bias for action. I'd say, one of the things I say is, even a bad plan is better than no plan. Because if you're if you're executing a bad plan, you'll recognize that and you'll head uh, in the right direction. And then lastly, uh, I talk about a diversity, the requirement for them to grow at every level. I have said that and learned that my whole life. My parents gave me that. But even at a very senior level, you have to grow. Uh, and, and having around you a diversity of views when you are making these very difficult decisions helps you make decisions. So that's a few of them that I kind of try to guide my life by. Mike, it's amazing because you're looking at these through the lens of the military. But if you're talking about business or anything yeah. else, those are the same principles. Well, when I talk to people, it's the same way. Where leaders fail, it's where they don't have the right team around them, right? Yeah. They don't have a diversity of opinion. And I say, looking back in my career, I, you know, I'm a, I, I tend to be action oriented. But I would say, when I've made mistakes, it's always been mistakes of omission rather than commission. You got to yeah. run to the problem. So anyway, yeah. very much, uh, very similar to, to to business or anything else. Now, your role in, in joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you advised both President uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. So talk a bit about the biggest differences in leadership style between those two presidents. And if, if you have any illustrative examples or anecdotes, I'd like to hear them. Well, I'll tell you a fun story. About, uh, I don't know, three or four weeks after Obama came in, uh, Gates, who I actually lived next door to, we had quarters, literally, we were neighbors. Uh, uh, we both went on the Sunday morning shows. He went on one, I went on a different one. And of course, one operative question was, well, you've been with the new president, you know, what's the difference between he and Bush? I actually demurred in answering that question uh, and Bob Gates answered it. And by the time Bob got back to his quarters, the Obama White House was hot and they were all over him. And I saw Bob later that afternoon and I said, what were you thinking? And he said, I don't know what I was thinking. I shouldn't have answered that question. Two extraordinary individuals in, in Presidents Bush and Obama. Quite frankly, the, the big similarity was uh, they both cared deeply for the country and trying to get it right for the country. They obviously had different views of the world, and that was okay. You know, again, I was blessed to be around both of them. When I took over as chairman, I indicated that, I mean, this is the end of the Bush administration. You for, you were there for that. And, and your world was, you know, coming down pretty hard, as I recall. I was more than a little fascinated with that because I'm somebody strategically that believes, you know, in my world, my work is easier if economies are going well. And if yeah. they're not, you know, the idea that conflict could break out uh, comes up considerably. But... But, you know, where where the President Bush was, you know, for the surge, and I knew Petraeus well. That's why going back literally three, three, four, almost four years at that point, I'd known Dave, which was a very important relationship. Uh, and we were doing the surge. Uh, and so, and obviously, President Bush was very, he was all in on that specifically. And he was, I mean, from a standpoint of being around President Bush, he was an engaging, fun personable individual, uh, you know, who'd had a pretty tough run, you know, post 9-11 did exceptionally well, but then the Iraq war really, really made it difficult. The timing for when President Obama comes in is, is okay, you know, I, he called it hope and change. And 
kind of a fun meeting I had with him because he asked me to come see him in Chicago uh, three or four days after the election was over to talk about national security issues. Um, and I can remember sitting down with him and he goes, something along the lines says, okay, I've been after this bus. I caught the bus. Tell me what's on it. And I said, Mr. President, the bus is full. Uh, and, you know, so we spent three or four hours going through, uh, I think it was about three hours going through the, you know, just the issues of the day that I was dealing with. Uh, and again, in incredibly caring, focused, uh, and style-wise, you know, he, he was different. I mean, the challenge, you know, one of the things that, that President Obama would do in national security meetings, he would ask a thousand questions. I mean, he really wanted to dig deep. He did a lot of his own personal study in that regard and, you know, made decisions based on that. So it, in, in a way, two different styles, but individuals that cared an awful lot about positive, constructive outcomes for the country. You know, uh, obviously there, the last two and a half years of, of the Bush administration, and he was a great boss for me yeah. during the crisis. He, he, he really delegated, but was very, very supportive. And, and I remember just sitting in these National Security Council meetings that went on and on and on when he just kept peppering Petraeus with questions. <laughs> Is there anything we can do, right? Yeah. yeah. So it, it just so, so difficult. Uh, yeah. So now... It is, Hank, it is having been up close and personal, watched that job with two individuals. It's an impossible job. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I was only dealing with half a pie because I was dealing with security. I mean, I never sat in on a domestic policy issue, which is the rest of his life for both oh, presidents. Oh, yeah. And what he was dealing with, he was, he was just so terrific with me because yeah. I'd bring him bad news all the time. And he was, yeah. he was bucking me up the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, supporting. So looking back on your career, you know, which you have many accomplishments. Uh, what do you take most satisfaction in, Mike? Well, I think uh, the story, uh, because I had, Hank, I had no expectations for senior jobs. Uh, if I had been a Navy captain, finished that major command, USS Yorktown, at the 21 or 22-year point, and the Navy had said, we don't have any more jobs for you, I would have saluted and said, thank you, I've been blessed, and I'll go figure out the rest of my life. Obviously, the Navy saw more in me uh, in that regard than I did at the time. So I felt very fortunate to move up the chain, much less be selected to run the Navy, which was a complete shock to me. And then that much more so when uh, when Bob Gates recommended and President Bush approved that I come in behind Pete Pay. So it's just been a, I, I've been incredibly blessed. I married a wonderful woman, you know, at a young age. Uh, we've been together, you know, now, you know, over 52 years um, and we had a blast. I got married in 1969, class of 68. So you got married 1970, 1970, two years later. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had two kids. My two kids went to Annapolis. I mean, it, it's just been a blessed life in that regard. But to get to, when people ask me what the best job I ever had was, it was chairman. Because here's a, you know, it's a great American story. Middle-class kid from Southern California can rise up through the ranks uh, and become the senior military officer in the country. Yet, it was easily the toughest job. And, and in war, you know, here's a sailor running two ground wars uh, and, and Deb, bless her heart and soul. I mean, literally Deb 
almost every single week was in Arlington at a funeral, you know, as we, you know, bearing some young, heroic individual who'd given their life. And I went to those as often as I could. We went to these returns up in Dover, uh, the distinguished transfer there constantly as well. And that was the hardest part of the job. And, and back to Vietnam, I did, I wanted the American people to one, see that those returns. So the American people would look at this and say, yes, this is what we want to keep doing. And I wanted, and Deb and I wanted to put a face and a name on this big military when a young widow who's 21 years old with two young kids uh, loses her spouse, you know, in war and to somehow personalize that as best I could. And that's what didn't happen, you know, when I was young in Vietnam. So we tried to do as much of that as we possibly could. So that clearly was the highlight. But the average age in any military unit is 21 years old. I mean, these kids, they are unbelievably good and they carry this burden in ways that we can't imagine. They're the ones that sacrifice the most. So what I'll remember most and what I miss the most, quite frankly, uh, and I've been out almost 11 years now, is are, are the people, the, the young ones that really carry the load. They are extraordinary. For sure. So now let's talk about the issues of the day because you're all over those. First, the Russia-Ukraine war. How do you assess the current status of the war and how do you see it ending? I think we're at a really critical time in history, not, not just for Russia-Ukraine. Uh, I believe on the 24th of February when Putin went in, the security structure in the world changed for as far as I can see into the future. And, to, and, and it is linked, what happens in Europe is directly linked to what may or may not happen in the Asia Pacific, specifically with China and more specifically with respect to China and Taiwan. Uh, I think our national security structure has to react to that. We're going to need to resource it as a country. It's going to cost more money because of the potential that's there. I worry that Russia in particular, Russia and China are now actually closer than they ever have been. Um, and uh, Xi Jinping is obviously watching what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, as you may know, I went to I went to Taiwan uh, in March at the behest of the Biden administration with a with a bipartisan uh, delegation. Um, and uh, the lessons of countries which are supporting a country uh, under attack was a big one in Taiwan, and that certainly has happened. The lessons of their own people fighting for uh, their own country, which the Ukrainians have been uh, incredible. And as recently as today, I see the Russians are actually departing Kherson, which is a huge move for them. It's the only provincial capital that they've taken since the war started, and they're now leaving. They're retrograding, to use a ground term, uh, as we speak. And that's a big deal because that's access to the Black Sea for Ukraine. The Ukrainians have been unbelievably responsive and capable. They've learned a lot since Crimea. I think that President Biden and his team have been remarkable to get the Ukrainians and our NATO allies, get the Ukrainians what they need when they need it. I wouldn't call it just in time because President Zelensky always wants more, but it's been pretty remarkable what we've been able to provide them. And then how the Ukrainians in an asymmetric way have fought this fight and, and taken back control in their country. I worry a great deal about Putin 
losing and desperate with nuclear weapons. And he's going to be more desperate. I, I don't think there's anybody either side. I haven't been totally surprised at how poorly the Russians have done. Uh, and I think that's, you know, the, the forensics on that will go on for a while, stunned, actually. But I worry the more desperate Putin is, the more likely he would use nuclear weapons. I have been out publicly now for more than a couple of weeks saying we need to figure out how this is going to end and we need to make sure it doesn't end with a nuclear weapon. That's a difficult one because the, the momentum that, that Zelensky and his and his population have, and they've been incredible. But at some point in time, it's got to end, and it's got to end in a way that we don't get into a war with Russia. I worry when Jake Sullivan, who's the national security advisor, said a few weeks ago that if Putin used nukes, there would be a catastrophic response. I don't think it would be nuclear from us, and I have no inside information, but I think it would be a massive conventional response, and I think it would be against Russia, and then we are right there you know, on the precipice of World War III with Russia. So I, I worry about that greatly. And then on the other side of the world, you know, I just worry we're, we're headed for a collision with China and we need to, we need to undo that. Yeah, well, I'm going to get to China in a minute. But, but looking at nuclear proliferation uh, more broadly, we got North Korea, we got Pakistan, we've got Iran. How, how concerned should we be? I think hugely concerned. I, we have a we have a tendency to not dismiss, but it's been so long since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We forget how devastating these weapons are, and they are game changers. Even tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, one, two. When you see what's going on in North Korea, uh, obviously, and you and I know Pakistan and India well. The, the, those are the two systems we worry about the most. Uh, with those uh, seemingly mortal enemies uh, and, and the proliferation of them in places like Turkey or Saudi Arabia uh, or other countries, uh, Japan and Korea. And I think that the, the reassurance that the regions of the world have that the U.S. will will support them and cover them, if you will, to make sure those weapons never get used is really important. If Putin lets loose with one and there isn't a response that's really devastating. I think that opens a door for too many other countries to say it might be a good idea to go do this. So it's a real worry. When we served together and, and when I served in the Obama administration and I negotiated the new, the new START Treaty in 2010 with my Russian counterpart, I was at a point where I sort of thought these weapons had been put on the back burner and now they're back in front of us. The other thing, and I talked about this earlier, is our ability to talk about these weapons, which we did routinely in the in the 70s and 80s, uh, whether you liked it or not, they were a very real possibility, particularly the tactical piece. But we've lost the facility to have cogent discussions about those these weapons, and it's too easy to take the tactical ones, the battlefield ones, if you will, uh, and conflate them to the strategic ones. And just to remind everybody, the strategic ones are in the world weapons, uh, in our life as we know it. We're just too close. And that clock, that doomsday clock that we talked about forever as I grew up, it's getting closer. We need to move it in the other direction. Wow, that, that is sobering. You recently uh, co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, which you argued that China should use its unique position of influence to encourage more rational decision-making by uh, Russian President Putin. Talk about how you think this should play out 
Well, what are China's interests here? Well, I mean, China is back to the nuclear piece. China's building a nuclear arsenal that is uh, getting uh, bigger and bigger day by day. When I negotiated this in 2010 with the Russians, part of the question in the back of my head was because China had, you know, a few at the time with an intent to build. But part of it was and these, you know, these treaties have been going on since the 70s. Um, uh, but part of, you know, part of my head was, what are we going to do about China? Well, now we need to answer that question and we need to get into some kind of structure to negotiate these these strategic nuclear weapons with not just Russia, but with China. Underpinning all this is at a time right now where our relationship with both countries is really bad. So I worry a great deal about the New START Treaty, which expires in 2026 with Russia, whether we'll even have a conversation about whether there'll be a treaty after that, uh, in addition to how you bring China into this discussion, which we owe the world from a responsible leadership position. So I'm as concerned about these systems as I've ever been. Uh, and leaders have to really step forward very specifically to get us to a point where this whole issue and area is diffused as opposed to it's, you know, building up as it is right now. Part of the, th this is why we sort of met, tried to message Xi Jinping is because we have no comms with Putin right now. Uh, and Xi Jinping does. It's, and it's also just like North Korea. When people ask me about North Korea, and you and I went through this several times, I just fundamentally believe the solution goes through Beijing. Uh, even in a dip, you know, Kim Jong-un and, and Xi Jinping will never be great friends, but th they are tied incentive-wise because China has so much impact on North Korea's economy. So I think Xi Jinping needs to message Putin to say, do not use these, because he's talking to him. We're not. Yep. And, uh, you know, he's said some things, according to, uh, to, to Schultz, the uh, chancellor of Germany, yeah, yeah, he, he yeah. has sent that message. But the question is, if Putin really has his back to the wall, how, how important that message is, right? Uh, th that certainly is, is a hope we have to have. Talk a bit about China and how you think about the challenge that uh, China poses to the U.S. I, I think it's huge. I, I have agreed, and I, I've said this for years. I, you know, the, these are the two biggest economies in the world. Uh, the two most important nations in the world, uh, and we have to have a relationship, uh, I view, uh, that is one of, I'll call it, peaceful coexistence. We don't have to become best friends, but we're so economically, and this is much more your lane than mine, but we're so economically intertwined uh, and dependent on each other in its own way, that is a way to 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 enforce or create deterrence from getting into a conflict. But I worry we're becoming more and more isolated from each other as we talk about decoupling, as we talk about more tariffs, as we talk about Taiwan, you know, all, all these things are going in the wrong direction. I don't know how to get at that unless Biden, unless the presidents talk to each other and, and permit the teams to start to engage, to look at the economy, health, climate, energy, areas that we can have culture, areas that we can have common interests on to calm this thing down. That's what I'm usually concerned about. Yeah, you and I see it the same way. The world's going to be a mighty dangerous place if we can't. We have shared interests because they're so such a big part of the global economy. 
they need peace, stability, and so on. So this is headed in a very dangerous way. I also worry that we're going to force decoupling to such a large extent in all technologies, we'll isolate ourselves because our allies aren't going to decouple to the same extent. Correct. And so that, that that's another concern I have. Now, I want to switch to Taiwan because you said something earlier I want to uh, ask you about. On the issue of Taiwan, do you believe the one China policy of, of strategic ambiguity? Do you think that maximizes our chance of preventing a military crisis or do we need to move to a policy of strategic clarity? Now, for years, this seemed to work really well, right? And, and for years, yeah. we had we had economic development of all of Asia and, uh, you know, and, and what Kissinger and Nixon worked out made great sense. So do you think we need to, to jettison that policy and and have more strategic clarity? How are you thinking about this, Mike? Well, I told as we talked just briefly earlier, I made that trip. And while I'm very familiar with the area, I hadn't been to Taiwan since 1970. And that was as a young sailor on liberty. I didn't have much to do with geostrategic issues back then. Uh, the, so I dove pretty deep into this issue. What struck me was how well this construct of strategic ambiguity for 43 years, 43 plus years now, has uh, done what we wanted to. It's prevented conflict uh, on both sides. I'm loath to take a structure that has served us so well for over four decades and just jettison it. It's a real fragile, delicate, explosive issue. And it's one I think, I believe this for a long time, that if China thinks Taiwan's going to be independent. They're going to throw all in. Uh, the way I think about it is Taiwan is to China like Nebraska is to the U.S. They think they own it. It's always been there. It's sovereign territory. That's their point. And they will do everything, including going to war to protect it. And it's right off their coast, right? Yeah. Now, I remember well that you advocated and had you know, military to military dialogues yeah, with, yeah. with China, yeah. which were very important. And right now, uh, as far as I know, the, the military lines of communication with China have broken down. Now, I, I wonder what, what you know about that. What role can dialogue play in reducing the risks of military conflict? In fact, Hank, I don't know if you remember this, but one of your trips to China. I sure do. <laughs> You called me in the middle of the night and asked me, I don't know if it was the middle of my night or your night, but you called me and said, can we delay or postpone yeah. this, the, the, the uh, transit and the Taiwan Strait? My point was there, I was all for the transit, but I was there, representative of the United States, Secretary of Treasury, going to meet yeah. the president of China the next day. And, <laughs> and, and Sandy Rand, the ambassador, says, guess what? The Navy's going to be going going through the straits. Right. So we did. So I called. I called Josh Bolton. I said, "Wake the president up." He said, "We can't do that." <laughs> I got the gates, and then you, right? <laughs> so anyway, and we and we did. We what was important is that we do them. Obviously, we don't want to intentionally disrupt other things. Yeah. So uh, the the that that whole issue of communication, and before I took over. I think Pete Pace was the first guy 
to actually go to China. And he had my terms. It was an important trip. Uh, but before that, we had almost no communications. And each time we had mill-to-mill communication, if we had an incident, the P3 incident you, you that happened early in the Bush administration, they, they would cut off. The first thing they do is they'd cut off communications. And when I got in and took over from Pete, even though he had had a visit, one, I was in, and, and I had had a visit when I was the head of the Navy from the head of their Navy. And I'm a relationship engagement guy. You know, you need those lines. So I had a pretty good connection with the head of their Navy. Then when I took over as chairman, uh, I wanted to do the same thing. So I really reached out. And one of the things I encouraged the Chinese military leadership is, look, we're going to have our ups and downs. But every time we have a problem, don't hang up. Don't cut off communications. So where are we right now in 2022? When Speaker Pelosi goes to Taiwan, which was a very controversial visit, I get it. What's one of the things the Chinese do? Boom, they cut off mill-to-mill communications. We have to establish that. And we have to keep it to make sure we are not miscalculating in this very, very fragile environment. Great powers can stumble into war. Yeah. As you said, miscalculation, miscommunication, escalation. Yeah. So that's critically important. I want to switch gears. We're talking about threats. You were chairman of the Joint Chiefs and played a major role in executing the plans that led to the death of Osama bin Laden. And although Al-Qaeda may no longer pose a significant threat, how do you assess the risk posed to the United States by other terrorist uh, groups like ISIS? Well, it was, I mean, we couldn't find the guy for 10 years, you know that, and you know how hard we were looking, uh, which was stunning. Uh, and then to have him almost hiding in plain sight was a bit of a shock as well. And you also know how often I went to Pakistan to have a relationship with with the head of, you know, with the most powerful guy in Pakistan, which is the head of their army. Um, and, you know, the, the execution of that, and I give President Obama a lot of credit because we did not have a smoking gun. <clears throat> we had good intel, but we had, we didn't have a smoking gun. And in the middle of 11, which is Obama's going to run again for re-election the following year, and his numbers weren't very good, that was a bet the presidency decision as far as I was concerned. If he hadn't been there or somehow it had gotten bungled, I think it would have cost him his presidency. And I always give him a lot of credit for that. Very complex operation. I had very a lot of confidence that we could execute it well, and it turns out he was there and we did that. But... That doesn't mean the terrorist threat's gone away. You know, I talk about post 9-11, and you were there for a lot of this as well. There are a lot of people working hard to make sure that never happens again. It's it's not happening because the threat's not out there. That is still the case. Uh, and I want to keep our guard up in that regard uh, as much as possible. I get that we're now focused on the great power competition, whether it's Russia, China. The actors are still the same. We've still got Iran. We've still got North Korea and maybe Venezuela. But the idea that we should just let that go, I think that's fool's gold. We need to keep focused on that threat is still out there. They do see us as you know the, the threat to their future and we need to pay attention to make sure it never happens again. Yeah, well, and I remember it was chilling for me. It was encouraging in the sense that the potential attacks were stopped. But it was amazing to me the number of them there were and how serious the consequences would have been if, if we hadn't stopped them. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the repeated, you know, they just keep coming. They yeah. keep coming. I mean, in the end, these are not going to go away until we, the world, solves the issue of young men 
mostly some women, but young men and women that think they have a future other than putting on a suicide vest uh, and, and continuing to recruit from that field for the very radical small few that lead these organizations. But there are still plenty of recruits. Yeah. So, Mike, this has been great. You talked about leadership principles and advice to younger men and women getting ready to go out into the world. Do you have anything more to say about that before we go? Just a few words, because the world is a, as you said, it's a volatile place right now. You know, everybody says I like change, but people don't like change. They got to be prepared to live with that. Just in general, not just military careers, advice to young people. Well, one of the things, Hank, and I didn't mention this and meant to before, that in my job as chairman, part of what I needed to do, I needed to be apolitical. I get, I stay out of the yeah. politics. As you know, working in the White House all the time, that's a tough place to do that because that's all they do. You know, 24-7, 365 is politics. That said, I we need good young men and women in politics. I mean, that's one of the things that we are lacking right now, in my view, and it's a tough time because you just get eviscerated so quickly in the political world by your opponents, but we need good people there. Politicians matter globally in every country in the world, and it certainly matters here, so that's one thing. Secondly, I've always used this phrase, listen, learn, and lead as a leader. Back to, I need, we need leaders. Listen, learn, and lead, and the more senior you are, I would argue the more you need to listen. And if you are a senior leader, I always tried to pull some young views in the room, which the Palace Guard didn't like when I did that, because young views are different views. And so how does a leader take advantage of that? Uh, I talked about taking hard jobs. You always have to grow uh, and, and you need to push yourself. You need to challenge yourself. You need to take care of yourself and take a break every once in a while. But to hold yourself accountable, take hard jobs, and really and try to make a difference in society because we need difference makers as leaders in every profession that we have. And to me, Mike, if I want a good definition of a difference maker, it'd be Mike Mullen. You've given us a lot to think about. We've covered a lot of ground, and uh, this has been terrific. Thanks. Thanks, Hank. It's great to be with you, as always. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.